And now it's time for We Are Just Christians, live from Savona Church in Port St. Lucie. Here are your hosts, Mike Smith and Gary Jones. Good morning, gentlemen. Good morning. Good morning. Welcome. We Are Just Christians. Thanks for tuning into the show today. We're really glad you're here. And for the next hour, we're going to be on the air here talking about spiritual things, whatever's on your mind regarding your personal life, about the Bible, about any kind of religious things, anything spiritual. And this show is certainly open to those who don't believe in those kinds of things. Gary, my name is Mike Schmidt, by the way. I'm the preacher and one of the elders for the Church of Christ here on Savona Boulevard. And with me is Gary Jones. How are you doing, Gary? I'm doing fine this morning, Mike. Good. good. And what, what, we, what I was starting to say was this show is certainly open to people who do not have our worldview, that is, of believing that the Bible is a source of authority and guidance for us. And uh, we are New Testament Christians. But we certainly would be glad to hear from anybody who's, who th- that isn't their view. And we promise to treat you fairly. You treat us fairly, and we'll have a conversation about whatever's on your mind. Good, bad, or ugly, as they say. And we've been, I'll give you the numbers in just a second. But as I, as I mentioned, it's a live call-in show. And so we're going to give people preference who call in uh, with a question or a comment. And we'll probably, probably try to relate whatever our answer is to what the Bible says about that. So you can look it up if you're interested in that. So you'll know where we're coming from. And you can do your own then study on that, and we'll try to give you an answer based on what the Bible says, because as Gary points out every week, that's what we're going to be judged by, right, right Gary? Right, exactly. John twelve forty eight. If if you want to listen to my advice, go to your Bible and highlight that verse, or underline it, or or cut it out if you don't like it. But well, yeah, basically, I've known people to do that kind of thing. Yeah. Yeah, we've known people that have done that. So uh, literally. But um, basically, that's a very important verse, and one that uh, Mike and I try to try to base our studies and, and our uh, our knowledge on. And since we believe that the New Testament has has the answers and is what Jesus intended for us to use today to guide ourselves, we use this both in our personal lives as well as in guidance for the collective church here, and and that's why we are intent on trying to bring forth this message here in Port St. Lucie in this area, or now since we're, you know, on Skype and around the world, you can listen to this show on our website and everything else. Whoever is listening, the idea that you can be just a Christian in the 21st century, you can be just what they were in the New Testament and, and pattern your life after that. And that's the best way that we know to make sure that uh, we are pleasing to God and, and doing his will. People are very concerned about always what how do I know do what, whether I'm doing God's will? Well, the way that you know is through the scriptures. That's how you know. And so that's what this show is about. Now, let me give you the number. We have a caller, but let me give you the number so you can reach us a couple ways to get a hold of us, and then we'll go to the phones. But uh, the, the, uh, the number to reach us is the usual WPSL call-in number, 772-340-1590, 772 one five nine zero is the number. You call that number, uh, Mike. I mean, Mike. <laughs> it's uh, it's one of those now, mornings. Now it's one, one of those mornings, isn't it, Mike? Roasted. You'll be put through here to us at the at the, our at our church building through Skype, and we can have a conversation. And you remember, there's a little bit of a delay, so we're not trying to walk all over you. If uh, if we do talk on top of you, it's more of a it's more of a, uh, a function of the of the technology. But if you'd also, you can reach us by 772-340-1590. And then um, you can also reach us by text message at 772, well, two text numbers, 772-260-6120. 772-260-6120. That's mine, Mike's. Or you can reach us at 772-260-6220. That's Gary's text number. You can reach us during the show or during the week. We'd be glad to hear from you. Anyway, we have a caller on the line. Um, are you there, Jerry? I'm not hearing Jerry. Hang on. What have I got going on? So hang on a minute, Jerry, because I'm not hearing you at all. Oh, not hearing me? Now, now, hang on. Now say, say it again. I think I'm hearing you. 
I was wrong about Paul was incarcerated and who wrote to Timothy. And number one, I want to know if if these levels were, uh, you know, kept under glass or something. And and who was Esther in this whole thing? Uh, 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 so I'm asking about Esther. Who who was on were these documents? Or if you want to call them letters, uh, uh, you know. Are, are they still with us? And uh, I'd like to listen on Father Gabriel Carmichael. Yes, it will. But let me ask you something. Uh, are you asking about Esther? Yes, Esther. Who 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 was uh, in this? Uh, or or uh, and that's what my question is. Okay, I'll. I'll uh, I think I understand. Anyway, I appreciate you calling in very much, Jerry. Thank you so much. And we'll we'll try to talk about that. So. Um, if I understood the question properly, and if I didn't, I apologize. Maybe Gary can help me out. We're having a little bit of a connection problem there as far as volume, but um, we do appreciate any call, and we'll do our best to, uh, to uh, try to make sure we answer the question. I think he was saying uh, about the Apostle Paul, who, well, Paul was an apostle, uh, whether he has been preserved or something like that under glass or whether they have these documents under glass. I'm not sure which of the two was it. I don't know any kind of indication that we have any of the remains of the Apostle Paul. Of any of them, Paul. Or any of the apostles. He, he was executed from what we know. Well, now, not in the Bible. We don't know what happened to Paul biblically. Best, best I can tell, Mike, there's no historical documents that reference that. It entirely comes from tradition. Tradition. And they say that he was put to death in the city of Rome, and that sounds about right. In about the year, what, 66, 67, 68, somewhere around there. Not long after the book of Second Timothy was written, this is what tradition says about Paul's death, and he died by execution um, at the hands of the Roman Empire. He, he references the idea that he thought this event was going to happen in the book of Second Corinthians. The time of my departure is at hand, he says, and so forth. Uh, apparently, but, but, uh, tradition holds that he was beheaded. Yes, and, and, and someone just texted in. I was just going to say, in Nero's purge uh, in 67, 68 AD or so, he, he was beheaded. That's what they say. Now, we have no, uh, no indication in the Bible that that's exactly what happened, but we are also, and we also don't have any of the remains. Now, look, um, over the years, Catholic Church and others before that time began to collect these relics, and if you read about all the relics in, that people have in, in cathedrals and churches and museums, for example, Gary, I, say, I always say there's enough art, there's enough wood from the cross to build Noah's Ark. You know, <laughs> got you, all, this is a piece of Jesus' cross. This is a piece of Jesus' cross everywhere, all across the world. And if you've ever and been to the Ark experience, it's that's a huge. lot of wood. Yeah, it's a lot of wood. But I mean, and, and they got the breast milk from Mary and the tears that she cried at the cross and a vial and all of this kind of foolishness. I'll call it foolishness because that's what it is. Okay, Those things were not preserved. They were not viewed to be miraculous at that time, nor were they viewed to be significant oftentimes at that moment. So they were not preserved, and, and none of the disciples had any recourse, had any access to, to the cross or the materials from the cross or anything like that. And the same thing is true of the bones of these people. We just don't have them, and it takes quite a bit to preserve bones for, for that length of time. And so the only ones we have are ones that meet some of those conditions of preserving the remains, and then knowing that that's who it is when they often buried multiple people in the same tomb over time or maybe and, even in the same box and so. well that's right the, the bones were put in the same box so the typical custom for you know not all poor not the poor people so much but but it, jesus was put for example in a tomb uh, that we had been newly cut out and what we know about those tombs i've seen these over in israel they have several go down like a little uh, in a little cave or hole, and and there's a, a carved out room, and they have several um, like shelves in there built out of rock, or they're kind of carved into the rock ledges throughout the thing, five, six, seven, whatever, however much room there is in there. Might even be in two different little rooms in that underground type cave that they've carved, and so they would wrap up a body like they did Jesus, lay it on there, and that might stay there for a year or so until all the flesh was gone, and then they, they would go back in 
somebody would go back in, collect all the bones from that person, put them in a box, an ossuary, uh, a stone box, and close it up. And sometimes that they only had one family, one family had one box, and so they would take over time some of the bunch of the relatives and put them all in the same box, just the bones. And so how do you know who anybody is? And then maybe later on they got thrown out. Well, we don't know about this guy. Pitch them all out. Like they're going to do my bones someday if they ever know who's, who's that guy. We don't well, know who he is. Throw him out. I Get guess it was seven, several years ago they reportedly, or some people think, they found the box that John, uh, was it John, John the brother, James the brother of Jesus was was buried in. Yes. But there's no real way to verify it. 100%. No. And then people studied it. Well, there's even this uh, Jesus family tomb, supposedly in Jerusalem. Uh, some guy referenced that the other day. I was going to mention that this morning in my sermon. But they, we don't know for sure at all what that could be. And I don't believe Jesus had a tomb. I don't think his family had a tomb. They were very poor. And, and even after, he, after his life, that family was not anything special at all in that time and, and so forth. So in, in the event... And even at I that, they only found the box. They didn't find the they bones. They didn't find the bones. Now, if, if, so if I'm understanding the question correctly, and we had bad audio, uh, no, they don't have any of the Apostle Paul's remains. If, if you go to some cathedral and it says it does, I, I don't think there's any actual historical evidence for that uh, kind of thing. And then most importantly about that, even if there were, it would be interesting, but it certainly wouldn't make your faith one way or the other wouldn't break it. Now, if they find the actual tomb of Jesus and he's still in there, now that, that might, might have an impact. Faith, yeah, that would have But that's going to take quite a bit of kind it's going to take the kind of evidence that we just don't have and probably can't get, you know, to to uh, to prove something along that line for centuries upon centuries the people of that time said there was no tomb. Even his enemies said there was no body in the tomb. They had to explain it. They away. had to explain it away, and they told different lies about why there was no body in the tomb, and so uh, that was the that's the early that's the earliest historical evidence we have about the body of Jesus, for example, is that it wasn't there, did couldn't be found, and then eyewitness testimony that they had seen him after he was alive, and then those who saw him ascend up into heaven. Now, what was the second part of the question? Here? About Esther, who was Esther? Esther. Well, Esther was is not connected to. Um, the apostles. Oh, okay. Okay. Now Jerry's back on the line to clarify. That sounds great. Are you there, Jerry? Uh, yes, Mark. I was just asking about the letters. I wasn't asking about the physical remains. Oh, okay. That was what I was kind of uh, getting uh, when you were talking. All right. So do we have oh, the letters of Paul somewhere? Is that the question? Okay. Well, now that's a that's a different question. And I meant to say when I first started answering it, Jerry, I apologize to you because I should have said that. That the other part of that is, I thought maybe I heard. Do we have his letters? We do not have the uh, original, as they call them, autographs of New Testament documents um, and so forth. So we just don't have those things. And and I I guess I have to ask. So how would you know if you did have? The original. The original. You wouldn't know. Um, you, you'd, it would take other kinds of evidence that, yeah, this is the original and that one's copied later. You can get that, but we certainly don't have it for anybody. Any, any, any ancient documents at all do we have that kind of evidence. And here's how they prove that. Here's how they, here's how they ascertain then what really happened. When you have a collection of these kinds of letters or they, they – uh, documents like that. They're looking for copies of those and even translations of those as close as they can get back to the time when they were supposedly written. And when you find then copies and the copies match up and they are written to different and maybe even translated into different languages so you have something to compare them against. Then, and this is true of any ancient document, then you have a lot better certainty that you're looking at something that is original, something that um, goes back goes to back room. to that time period. You can begin to trace it. So you have some evidence. Now we have fragments of the Book of John that go back well into the first century, at least within 60, 70 years. At least, of, now I've heard John. that that Ryland's fragment has been dated anywhere from 125 A.D. 
as early as 75 or 80 AD. Something not that's not the majority opinion. So if you take the average very early. So if you take the average of a hundred, you're within about sixty, seventy years of John actually living and writing. Right. And what you have before what you have in the interim is the same people saying this is what John said or wrote the same way. So you have other sources that verify that. It's been said, and it's I'm sure it's easily provable, that you could take the writings of these what are called church fathers before 300 A.D. Who quoted? Who quoted the New Testament? You could reproduce most all the Bible, especially the New Testament, easily from their writings, and and just from uh, their quotes. What's that? Yeah, about how they quote the Bible, and and what they say about it, and and very they're very they are varied sources at different places, and so it isn't just one person copying another person in that case. Well, there, there's, an, there's an illustration that I've often wanted to do, Mike. I actually wanted to do it here sometime, but I've never got the nerve or the time to pull it together. To illustrate just exactly how good these copies can be is you can actually take, I, I would take, a, say, a paragraph and type it out. And then you could come to a group of people like 30 or 40, maybe 50 or 60 that we've got here and say, okay, here's the original. Each one of you go make a copy. And have I might have fifty or sixty copies? Would all those copies be exactly alike? And they wouldn't because they would have maybe an error, a word left out, or a word misspelled, or something like that. But rarely would two copies have the same error. You know, yeah. most of most of the copies in that particular word would contain it. And so within those sixty copies, I could go back and by analyzing those, I could be absolutely certain I've got a true original copy of the original, even if it was destroyed. Right. And that's kind of an illustration of how it works. And I, I think that's a good illustration for people to understand that we can have tremendous copy or tremendous, how am I say it, confidence yes. in what we have as being true to the original documents. Mm-hmm. I think that's exactly right. Uh, there's a but we've done this before, and I, I can be uh, painful on the radio, but I might try it again in a minute about some of these some of this documentary <laughs> evidence for the New Testament. Uh, John texts in two or three things here, uh, Gary. That uh, first he says early Jefferson bought two Bibles and cut stuff out. That, that's probably <laughs> correct. I know I've seen people do that exactly. Well, it's not my Bible. It's not because you cut it out with a knife, you know. Uh, but we see this is this is done by major corporations like Reader's Digest that produces the feminist inspirational version of the Bible and leaves out all of the negative verses, you know, what they consider negative verses. So you know, people and people buy these things. But what they're buying is somebody's somebody's taking a knife, as it were, a digital knife, and cut out the verses that you're, they don't like. You're basically like. buying a corrupted copy yeah. of the Bible. And, and, yes, and so, yes, people cut out what they don't like. So he, he says we don't have any of the original text in the New Testament. As far as we know, we could have something that that, that one that we say that's from 125 could certainly be an original, but we don't. We have no way to know that. He said the earliest, the oldest uh, manuscripts are in all caps. Uncial, they call it. U-N- Unical or Unical is some way yeah. some people pronounce it. Unical. Yeah. What it means is one typeface. And and they did that for space reasons. This vellum and sheepskin and even parchment was not something that was really cheap and easily accessible. You can't go. They couldn't go down to the local staples and buy 500 sheets of paper anytime they wanted to and write a letter on it. They, they, it was much more difficult, and so they they put all capitals so it couldn't be easily misunderstood, and they put they took out a lot of the vowels, shoved it all together, and made it all one thing. Took out punctuation marks and all this kind of stuff to make it. And you can still just go through it, and you can divide it back up, and it works fine. Well, actually, Stephen Fry does a, a YouTube on the Gutenberg Bible. If you ever have a chance to watch it, it's pretty good. Gutenberg wanted to print over 100 Bibles originally on vellum, which is calfskin. Yeah. And so he went and looked up how much calfskin and how many calves it would take to print up 100 Bibles, and it was something like 2,500 calves. Okay, and, and they just he just didn't have the money to go buy 2,500 calves. So most of his Bibles were printed on paper, but they did print about, I 
uh, don't quote me, but somewhere around a dozen on vellum. And those dozens still remain today in really good shape. And he was he was looking at one. It's very interesting. I've not uh, seen the on vellum. I've seen them. I've seen a Gutenberg yeah. page print on the, paper. The, the vellum ones, apparently he had that. They brought it out in a locked box and, and let him oh, yeah, use his gloves and everything. Yeah, pretty but it was valuable. it was in astonishing condition for something 500 that, for plus years. Yeah. John here also points out that later Greek used small case and different letter styles that change over time. And so we can date by that. Well, yes, you can get <clears throat> sometimes you can get an accurate age. Here's the problem with some of those things. And we it goes from us from a, a textual critic or archaeologist telling you what he discovered. He discovered in this place at this at this date in this site. He discovered X, Y, Z. And then you have these people that interpret it. So the person that's interpreting this is, can be the one who makes the error. If you were to find the, the ruins of my home some 150 years from now, there's a whole room in there, Gary, that's got stuff from my grandfather and great-grandfather and mother in it. There would be decades, hundred, maybe 100, 150 years older than anything else in the house. And if you only found that room, you say, well, this house dates from from 1850 to, 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 to 1900. That's when this house dates from. Are they correct about that? Well, of course they wouldn't be correct about that because they found something that somebody else had. So now that's just simple. I'm not saying that's what happened in all these cases, but I am saying that that's sometimes the kind of thing that does happen. And an archaeologist publishing a paper for a university to get a grant or keep a grant doesn't want to go into all of that kind of stuff. And then and then the people oftentimes in the press are writing sensational books. They don't want to ruin the headline by pointing out the actual facts of the case until paragraph 45. You know, they might point out that fact. So be careful when you jump to conclusions about these things. I took an I took a um, art history class which involves archaeology at the University of Miami some years ago. It was a, she, I had a great time in there. It was a good, really good class. Very, very good professor. I think I've told you before. Her name was the Alexandra Alexandrakis or something from the University of Miami, Greek woman. She was very good. But when she was trying to tell me about, she was trying to tell me what all these cave paintings meant and what some of the Greek, uh, what the, some of the Egyptian art meant, what the meaning of it was and, of course, she had her own secular spin on these things, and I was always tongue-in-cheek challenging her on these on this stuff. And she she understood what I was doing and why I was saying it, and she didn't acknowledge that, but she had a class to teach, and she wanted to get across a point, which wasn't, of course, favorable to the Bible at all. But one day I brought in an article I found in Reader's Digest, and I've since been unable to locate this. It was basically a satire where they had somebody in some years from now had uncovered a Motel 6, Gary. Okay? <laughs> a modern Motel 6. And here's and they're trying to explain all the sacred rooms, how this temple, they thought it was a religious temple, had been divided into all these small compartments here where they had worshipped all these various deities, and, and these were little sarcophagi. And here's a woman, you can see her, she's in, the, in a bathtub, all, a skeleton all sprawled out, and she's got a She's got a, ba a, a shower cap on, you know, and that's some kind of special headdress. And then they, they took the, they found a toilet seat there. And so they had taken the toilet, another drawing to represent what this sacred headdress looked like. They had taken the toilet seat and draped it over her neck and put the, the, the lid up her back and had drawings on that. And all through the whole motel, Motel 6, was this kind of archaeological evidence of the discovery of a sacred temple from the 1900s, you know, this kind of thing. And so I showed her this. She laughed, but she, was, she really didn't want me to share the article with the whole class and blow her whole proposition on what all this cave art meant, what it had to mean, and what these people were thinking, what they ate for breakfast, and, you know, and all that kind of stuff. And so you got to take some of this well, you gotta understand. and realize why it's being said like it is. got to understand those people didn't write explicit instructions about what they were doing and we don't find that and that's the only way you're going to know because nobody's alive to tell us what was going on history is that way and it's, right. it's, unless somebody sits down and writes it you don't have 
any idea, and and even then, it's written from a particular point of view. Right. Now, now here's the gist of this discussion about some of the manuscripts that Jerry asked about. We know we we may not have the exact original, but can, the question is, can we number one know what the original was, and number two, does do the Bibles that we have today are they representative? Are they close? Are, do they un, do they replicate? what uh, what we do what we do have in these manuscripts i think the answer is number 1 yes what we have in our bibles does represent accurately what's in the manuscripts that are accepted by scholars as um, salient or uh, bearing on this the point of the new testament and secondly we have tremendous amounts of evidence let me give you this number R- right now we have 5,600, almost 5,700 Greek manuscripts of the New Testament available. That's not all complete copies, but we have over 5,700 Greek manuscripts available of the New Testament. Now, how does that compare with other ancient documents? That we don't question. We don't even question. Plato. Okay, so Plato, we, we, ha- the, we have seven copies of various not all, not complete copies of his writings. We have seven copies of his writings, and it's 1,200 years, 1,200 years between the time he wrote them and the date of the first manuscript that we have. And we have seven of them. In the Bible, we have 5,700 copies, and they date within 30 years. Which one do you think we can have confidence is accurate to what was actually written? Well, no. people act like Plato. We know what Plato wrote, and but but the Bible. Oh no, we can't trust the Bible. No, well, there's not even not even a statistical comparison between no. those two kinds well, of things. E- exactly. But now yeah. I have to admit, though, what is the consequence of of our view of Plato being wrong as opposed to well, the Bible being exactly. wrong? Exactly. Well, I, I think that's a point that they make. Well, you still got to believe it's true. Uh, you're right. But we, God gave us that evidence. And and there's the other point. The Bible claims to be inspired by God. So you can't, regardless of what you think of the manuscripts, you can't get away from that claim. You only have two choices. Either it was or it wasn't. Right. right. That's, that's the only way we can look at it. Now, right. if you believe it wasn't, personally, I think you're wasting your time with it. But if you believe it was, it's very important, and that's why I keep coming back to John twelve forty eight, because Jesus says that word that he left us through him and the apostles is what's going to judge us in the, in the final judgment. So it becomes very important. Right. And, and so you only have those choices. And I, I kind of believe that uh, C.S. Lewis would probably agree with that analysis. And I, yes, you, you have to, but you have to, I'm trying, and I agree with that. I'm trying to point out, though, to people that before, what the reason the Bible is under attack is because of what it says. If it wasn't for what it says, there would be no question. This would be the most, by by um, exponential sure. numbers, the most documented source of his in ancient history. But because people don't like the message and they don't like what it says, somehow it's pushed off as being inaccurate now and and we we i'm talking about using not some kind of special religious way to examine these documents i'm talking about historiography and bibliography uh, where you're using the same methods to analyze these documents that we call the new testament and compare and the same thing you do with any other for example the only one that even comes close to the bible and i i mean all, a bunch of these, i got a whole list of them in front of me, I'm not going to bore you with them, are, are Roman historians and Greek historians, where we get our knowledge of Greek and Roman history that we teach our kids and at universities and people get PhDs in Greek and Roman history, and they are not even in the ballpark. In fact, when it comes to assigning them an accuracy rating of how accurate we think we the originals are, I mean how accurate what we have is to the originals, they're not – the scholars don't even give them a rating, but that's the, that we base our knowledge of Greek and Roman history on those documents. Homer, who wrote the Iliad, this is for the Iliad, about 900 B.C., the earliest copy we have of, of Homer's work is 400 B.C. That's 500 years, but we have 643. We have one-tenth as many for Homer 
as we do the New Testament. And Homer's given a 95% rating as far as that the, that the because we have that number of copies, that number of manuscripts, we can compare the manuscripts and see how they say. We believe with a 95% accuracy that we have what Homer said. So when you come to the New Testament now, less than 100 years, not 400, not four or 500 years, but less than 100 years you begin these things, and we have 5,600, almost 5,700, they raise the rating to 99.5%. We know at a rate of 99.5% uh, accuracy what the New Testament says. Well, I want to go back. I'm not say, hang on one second here. I'm not saying that a person has to agree with the New Testament. I'm saying that you can know what it says. Now, whether you agree with it or like it, that's another whole story. Well, that's what I want to Whether you believe, believe what it says, that's another story beyond being accurate. But don't doubt that it says what it says. Well, that's what I wanted to go back to, Mike. You know, people complain about, well, it's not understandable. You can't understand it. It's, it's Basically, I don't think that's the problem. I think the problem is that people do understand it and don't like what it that's says. Exactly. They don't like what it says. They don't like the implications, which is what, which is the implication, Gary. You keep uh, torpedoing this show every one because you keep quoting that verse about, New Testament's going to judge us in the last day. Where you're torpedoing the show because you're telling people it matters whether you believe this. I'm doing this. I'm saying this tongue in cheek, of course. You looked at me like what? I'm, <laughs> I'm tongue in cheek here. Well, because to some people, the implication that yes, the New Testament says this, and you need to pay attention to that. That's an untenable viewpoint for them, and so they will find some other reason. Have you ever been told, you know, like you're you, you got a you got a girlfriend or something in high school or college, and and they try to explain to you why they're breaking up with you. You know, it's old, it's me, it's not you thing. Or you ask a pretty girl out, and she tells you, well, you know, I can't go Friday night because I got to brush my hamster's teeth. Well, you know, <laughs> <laughs> people people really search around for an excuse to not do what they don't want to do. And sometimes I think it's the same thing. Some of the reasoning given for the rejecting the New Testament is about like I got to brush my hamster's teeth. Well, don't, and now, if you just want to get out and say there, and, and some of these guys do, I don't like what it says. I'm not going to do it. Well, nah, okay, that's at least honest. I can deal with that. But the other is we we have do not reject the Bible because you don't think we have any historical evidence for what it actually says. We do. That's not a logical way. That's not that's not a, that's not a scientific or rational way in the long run to reject it. There's because you'd have to reject almost everything else we know about almost every subject that you know involving you history that. or things that went on before our time. And fact is, you you know, wouldn't even know you wouldn't even know anything about the assassination of JFK or anything like that if you rejected all of those kind of things. Anyway, um, that's the that's the problem. It's. And I have found this to be true. Um, I have found this to be true about in my dealing with people personally. I probably have told I told this story before, and it's it's certainly the, I, the fellow involved in this is one of the fellows I really respect in a very profound way. So this is not a story against him at all. But uh, I uh, there was a girl at church many years ago, a young lady at the time, and she says, well, I have a friend at work who who uh, I want you to sit and talk with him, and I don't want you to talk to her and her husband about about what the Bible says because they got some questions about the Bible, especially the husband. He, he doesn't believe the Bible is true at all or it's, it's, fo- it's phony. So we sat down at the kitchen table. I didn't know these people. Very smart. He worked for some company or something like that. Very smart guy. And his wife was a was a very, very, very intelligent woman. And so we and I went over, I asked him what he thought, well, the Bible, we can't even don't even know what it says. So I went over some of this stuff I'm talking to you about right here with him. Come to find out in the course, the conversation pretty well shifted immediately. Once he saw some of that stuff and looked at that, I could see him, his brain racing through those numbers (laughs) and all this kind of thing. He had never heard anything like this before. Come to find out what was what the reason he. He said, come to find out he had been having an affair with another woman. His wife had found out. His life had collapsed. 
he didn't really want to do much about it at, at that moment. But the whole reason why he rejected the Bible was more of a moral reason than it was an intellectual reason. And that's why Jesus says in John 48, the, the reason that you don't hear me is why can't you hear what I'm saying to the Pharisees? Because it's the will of your father to do, it's the will of your father, the devil, to do what he wants. That's why you can't hear what I'm saying. Exactly. Now, now, this young man changed his viewpoint. He, he repented of what he had done, and they became Christians and never looked back because he was honest enough, unlike most people, to admit that my rejection of the Bible had to do more with me doing what I wanted to do, not just about the adultery, but his whole way of living was me exerting my own power and doing what I want to do, and nobody can tell me what to do. That's just, that was his whole basis of making decisions. Finally realized that. And then the Bible became something he could look at. And so that's most, most that's mostly our problems. Most of us are the same way. That may be an exaggerated case. But I think I've run into this over and over during the years. Well, the real tragedy of it is, Mike, is we have a lot of people, uh, liberal, you know, in, in ilk, if you will, who want to make this into a utopia. That's it's, well, we're just trying to make the world better. What they don't realize, if they would adhere to what the Bible says, how much better this world would really be. It's just, it's amazing to me that the things that we're seeing that everybody is objecting to and all the the violence and the theft and, and the murders and everything are coming about because we've abandoned what God said. As a you know, our government doesn't function anymore because there's no integrity in the people that lead us. All of these things are predicted, basically, within the Bible, not in prophecy that this particular thing is going to happen. But basically, if you read what's in the scripture, you will see when we abandon these things, when we abandon the integrity, the morality, just like he was talking about, the morality that's in the Bible, society will destroy itself. And that's what we're in the process of doing. And it just amazes me that they reject the very thing that they claim that they would like to, to be able to do, or they reject the means to get to where they claim they want to go. It's just, it, it amazes me. Right. Sorry, Mike. Uh, I, that, I had to get. I, I agree. You know, um, <coughs> this is. Um... <laughs> I'll have to show you. <laughs> I'm laughing because I'm reading a text here. A and I know the guy that I'm texting with. He, he, he texts the show a lot, and it's great. I love it. But he's um, – that he quotes uh, – he's quoting Bart, er uh, Bart, Bart Ehrman, who is a, a modern New Testament critic. And uh, I think he's become – he's one of the guys I – I'm, I'm thinking what they what do they call it deconstructing has deconstructed over the years and doesn't believe in the in the um, doesn't believe in the inspiration of the New Testament and so he says uh, Bart Herman's Bart Ehrman's book misquoting Jesus goes all goes over all this he says no responsible historian has to admit that Jesus existed well I think that's completely wrong that I think that modern historians do admit that Jesus existed and and um, so forth. They just don't like what they, they don't think his life means what I think it means. And so anyway, um, this misquoting Jesus. And so I'm going to take a look at that. I'm going to take a look at that um, book. Yeah, yes. Modern historians, from what I've read now, back in the 1800s, it was very common for historians to say Jesus never existed. And I've had a debate with atheists about this very subject at a university level about Jesus existing. And the fact is, modern historians will tell you that Jesus did exist. They aren't going to tell you he was the son of God and he all that kind of stuff, but that he was an actual person. And the reason they do that is because there's historical evidence both in and out of the Bible that indicate that. But this book, Misquoting Jesus, now I'm going to guess, I don't know much. I've heard about this fellow. Uh, I'm kind of putting this tongue-in-cheek back to... Uh, John, the texture here. I'll have to take a look at that. I said that book. My guess is that he makes Jesus a modern liberal with liberal morals and viewpoints. Just a guess. What people do with Jesus is they want to say, well, he was a social revolutionary or he really didn't mean what he said about 
gender and marriage. He didn't really mean those things. You're misquoting him when you say that. Now, now, I could be wrong about this fellow, uh, but or that he was only discussing a few little Jewish controversies. He didn't mean to create a worldview, didn't mean to uh, to uh, correct Judaism and explain what Ju- Judaism was really about. I think I think there's also this misunderstanding, and I heard somebody in the radio say this recently, that somehow Jesus had to convince people not to be Jewish, that being Jewish was wrong. That's completely wrong. Jesus was a Jew. He never tried to convince someone not to be Jewish. He tried to show them what that what the Old Testament said about being, as it were, Jewish, was pointing to Jesus Christ. That's all. And so he wanted those people who were culturally Jewish, had been raised to follow the law of Moses— to continue what that was about and believe the Messiah, that the law of Moses was about the Messiah, which I think is true. So, yeah, there's a lot of people with mis- with, with a, and when the problem goes back again, I'll say it again, a lot of these scholars personally have an antagonism, and maybe for good reason, with the Roman Catholic Church and, and quote-unquote the church, and so their, their, their criticisms and, and their responses to these things is based on a on a uh, misunderstanding of what the New Testament church was really about or what Jesus really came to do. But even at that, Mike, it boils down to what I call intellectual honesty. They're not being intellectually honest with themselves in terms of logical studies or critical thinking. They're, they're allowing their emotions and their desires to fill in what they want. That we all are, we all are motivated, even though so-called scientists are motivated by emotions, by personal feelings and emotions. emotions. And you, you can minimize that. Some people minimize it better than others, but you can never get rid of that because it's a part of our nature. So you have to take it into account when you judge things. And so, yes, these people have a reason. They have a reason for not wanting the world to have meaning. That's why that's why discussions like the ones we have here are important because we bump ideas and things against those things in terms of logical and critical thinking interpretation of the scriptures to be sure that those things are filtered out. But if when we don't do that, when we bury ourselves in those things and pick up the agenda that our emotions want to give us, we don't see those things and it's difficult. That's, that's very hard. Now, I'll, I'll be honest with you. My, my profession led me in a way that has helped me in many ways to avoid that because as designing things that have to work, you go to a test stand. Well, a test stand doesn't have any emotions. And basically, it will reveal to you what your emotions made you do that was wrong very, very explicitly. And... You have to learn as you go through those exercises how to put those emotions or what I like and what I don't like aside to look at exactly what's there logically and under a critical thought. And that will help you. But, of course, the whole world (coughs) and the Bible do not operate on the principles of engineering. Well, that's true. But basically in terms of making a uh, doing critical thought in the analysis, it's still the same. Right. Well, it is the same. And it, it, you do have to say, well, I may not like this, but is this true? Is this You're what right. the Bible says? I don't like okay. the way this is going to look. I would like to have a machine that looks like this. But that test stand is going to tell you whether what you like works or not and what what maybe you don't like does work and what you like doesn't work. And that basically. <coughs> Here, here's a quote by Aldous Huxley, famous philosopher, atheist of the 1900s, late 1800s. And he, he says, I had motives for not wanting the world to have a meaning. Consequently, I assumed it had none without, he's saying without realizing it, and was able without any difficulty to find satisfying reasons for this assumption that the world did not have meaning. The philosopher who finds no meaning in the world is not concerned exclusively with the problem in pure metaphysics. He's not just objectively looking at the world and saying it doesn't have meaning. He is concerned to prove that there is no valid reason why he personally should not do as he wants to do or why his friends should not seize political power and govern in the way that they find most advantageous to themselves. This is what this is what secular liberals have always been about. And this we see this at play in our society today. 
For myself, he says, the philosophy of meaninglessness was essentially an instrument of liberation, sexual and political. So the philosophy of meaninglessness, that the Bible isn't true, that there's no God who can tell you what to do, is essentially, he says, a philosophy, uh, an instrument of liberation. So what do we find the big hue and cry is in our society? Got to be free yourself from these old traditions, free yourself from God, be your own self, do what you want. You get to choose your own destiny. This is the this is what he's saying here, that most people will reject the Bible, not because if they've done a careful examination and found it to be untrue, but they, they do it for personal reasons, which they refuse to admit because it's not very pretty. And basically, they're looking for sexual liberation or political liberation. Now, there's a lot to there's a lot of truth in what he's saying there. That, that, and that's what's going on in our society today has been for a few generations. Oh, that's to, what goes on the, on a personal level, like my friends I was talking <clears throat> about. That was what was going on. His rejection of the Bible was a personal <coughs> one. He thought it was intellectual because he was very smart and educated. But it turns out it was really a personal cover. Now, this is this is what the Bible says about what Jesus says about people, too, why they won't listen to what he says or hear him. They can't hear him because it would mean that they need to make some kind of change. They need to make some kind of response or change. Well, when you hear somebody say, True well, of all of us, when you hear somebody say, well, what is your truth? That's exactly what's happening. Well, yeah, that's what the modern world's about. You get to decide. Of you course, you get to decide what truth is. And you really, in reality, don't get to decide what no, truth you don't is. Get to decide. What happens is that kind of philosophy creates such disorder in the world that we start begging for some person to control us all, which is where we are now. We're begging for people to control us all and take charge of this thing. But anyway, that's another whole subject. In any event, though, this is what we have to guard against personally, whether we're an engineer with a test stand or whether we're just someone who's deciding what to do about this weekend or our life or our moral viewpoints. We have to get rid of this personal feeling that we get to decide whatever we want and look at what's true. And the Bible is very demanding about this. And on the other side of the coin, Gary, you and I have to understand, as elders in this church and as teachers of the Bible, that not the, the majority of people are never going to believe what we're saying about this because they want to do what they want to do. And the Bible simply says that's the wrong pathway. You can't have that pathway. Now, what we know, what you and I know, Gary, is that Staying in the in the the on the road of the the Bible and the way to Jesus, staying within the the lane markers, as it were, morally and and every other thought process, morally, intellectually, staying in that in your lane leads to happiness, leads to joy. It actually leads to freedom. I'm a much more free person because I don't do drugs. That I am if, to say I'm so free I can use all the all the intoxicants I want. I'm a much more free. I'm much freer, much more free. That probably and much happier, it. happier and and fulfilled. And, and I made this point a few weeks ago about having in America. Somebody made a quote that here we are. We have more stuff, more abundance than any people have ever had by far in the history of the world. And you know how we know that's true? The amount of painkillers and pills we take every day to keep us happy. That's how we know we have all this, why we have all this stuff. That's how we know we have more than anybody else ever had because we're all drugged up all the time and want to get more drugged up all the time. Here's the other thing about it. Am I, maybe I'm crazy, Gary, but I was driving up Fort Pierce the other day past Midway Road, and I look over to the side. There used to be a little convenience store gas station there on the west side of Midway and US-1. Now... I couldn't tell. I thought at first maybe it was a new church. It's called Sanctuary, the Sanctuary. You know what it is? It's a marijuana dispensary. Oh, yeah. The, the, the other ones around here are called True Leave, like Believe. Instead of Believe, it's True Leave. Leaf with a, you know, the, the, the marijuana the leaf. So we're, we've even convinced ourselves that taking drugs is a religious experience. <clears throat> we're back where we were in paganism, pagan times. I read the other day. The Oracle at Delphi, you know, the thing where the Greeks thought was, was the gods were speaking to them through this Oracle at Delphi. It was in a cave. And so it was a crack in a rock. They've done some research there. And I forgot which gas it was. One of these noxious gases has been leaking up through there because of, uh, of uh, at that time, the thing was especially true. 
and it would the pre the little priestesses would sit back in this little crevice with a statue in front of them, act like they're speaking like the goddess. And what they were is they were getting high back there. They didn't even know. Maybe they didn't even know it. Maybe they did. And they get all these crazy revelations back there because they're breathing in nitrous oxide or something from this volcanic area. And so intoxication was how the gods were speaking to the Greeks. Now that it had an earthquake and the gases were shifted over, and so the Oracle of Delphi became less popular because the priestesses were no longer intoxicated. <laughs> speaking out of their, they weren't they weren't any tripping anymore as it were they thought. well before i forget did uh or way off track here did jerry ask about esther he did and maybe we should talk about it. <coughs> esther is not i'm not sure the connection he had in mind maybe he can call back maybe not uh, maybe not this week if you want to call back Jerry, you can or next week esther lived long before jesus christ toward the end of the old testament period and um she is a great heroine in history, in the history of the Bible and history of the Jews, because she saved them from genocide, as it were, as one of the captives who had been, her family had been taken captive. She grew up in captivity, as it were, and had become, because of her beauty and grace, actually a queen. I believe she was an orphan. Persian well. queen, yes. And uh, you can read the book of Esther. It's a wonderful book. But basically, when she found herself in this position of where she was, she had a choice. I can remain silent and she and thinking maybe no harm would come to me or I can speak out to the king, tell him what's really going on. And I'm, I risk being killed myself. And she had to speak out carefully. She couldn't do it just exactly. And she directly. did it. She did it that with great wisdom. So but she's viewed by the Jews as a great heroine for this reason. And um, now I'm, I think the festival of Purim is dedicated to Esther and so forth. And yet there's no Bible. Well, it wasn't one of the, one of the feasts of the Lord, but they had a great feast, but they were saved. And so Esther has become in modern times to those who, to Jews who still believe in the old Testament, to try to follow God most Jews do not. Most Jews have become secular atheists in their orientation, probably like most most of the rest of us. She's a great hero because she stood up to a genocidal attack from a government, and God God blessed her, blessed the Jews. So the point of Esther is in that in chapter four, I think it's about verse fourteen. Her uncle tells her, you know, if you don't if you don't stand up and do what's right, deliverance from Jehovah will come from some place. But who knows whether you've been brought into the kingdom for such a time as this? Well, actually, this is your time and you need to do what's right yeah. today. Actually, he says deliverance for the Jews will come. Right. It's uh, from some place, from some place. Basically, there's a unique thing about Esther in the it God. Was that verse 14, by the way. Yeah, Before, I okay. think you so, looked it but, up there. OK, <clears throat> but. But basically, uh, God is never mentioned by name in Esther. Well, that's one of that's one of the objections about about it is that uh, the name of God is not in the book per se, and yet it's one of the book. Yet it's a book of the Bible that clearly shows God uh, shows God's hand in the working of the world working. and shows yes. His providence. It's just odd that that's the case. Also, it's the only the Hasidim. The I think the there's a Jewish women's organization. Is it Hadassah? I got it wrong. Hadassah. Yeah. Is a Jewish women's organization. That's her Hebrew name, not Esther. A per, that's a Persian name. But Hadassah, the Hebrew name, uh, if I got this right, maybe you can correct me. I'm doing this from memory, so I didn't look it up here. Um, when Incidentally, Esther is is the only book that was not found, at least partial copies in the, in the Dead Sea Scrolls. Esther, oh, is that right? I guess, Esther, I guess I do Esther remember that. Esther is the only book missing from the Dead Sea Scrolls. Oh, I'm sure that's because all those uh, <laughs> Essenes were anti-female, so they got rid of that book. I, I'm, I, I, I'm sure that's what somebody has already written. I can predict that's been written, yeah. you know, that they were a bunch of patriarchal, you know, bigots. They wore MAGA <laughs> hats or something, you know, there in the Dead Sea Scroll, right in the Dead Sea Scrolls. They had their... They had their Trump mugs and stuff, so that, that's why they didn't put her in there. I have no idea about that. I, I, I think, though, that 
it's a it is a great it's I've preached several lessons or, or sermons over the years on Esther, and she is one of the great not just women in the Bible. She's a woman. She's one of the great people in the Bible. And that's what I mean by that, by saying she's a great woman. And she's one of the great people in the Bible. And so but Jerry, she's not connected directly with Jesus as far as or or Paul or anything like that. Uh, in fact, I don't think she's mentioned in the New Testament either. I had to double check that, but I don't recall any reference to Esther in the New Testament Let as me such. See if I can. But I don't think that there is even an oblique reference. Really appreciate you calling in with these questions. And uh, uh, anytime any of you want to call in with a question, we you can see me and Gary, we always end up probably spending too much time on it. But the idea of the manuscripts. And How do you spell Esther? E S T. H E R E S T H E R. Yes. They don't teach spelling in engineering school. No, no engineering. <laughs> um, I'm I love to give Gary a hard time, so yeah. I hope you understand that. We're, well, engineers are known for not, engineers are known for not being able to spell. So, I've heard so, that. Yeah, so yeah. it's it's just yeah something you deal with. Uh, basically, <laughs> and the rest of us don't know how to count, so you, we deal with that. <laughs> <laughs> basically, I can't find any recognition of the name Esther in the New Testament. I don't think there is. In any of my translations. If there is, it completely escapes me. And, of course, someone can text in and say, no, Mike, you're wrong. Here it is. And that would be great if you did. Yeah. But uh, that's, that would be – I just don't see – I don't remember anything in the New Testament. That, that doesn't mean anything. I mean, she's going to have to be considered among those great people that are referred even in, an, in group ways or generically in Hebrews chapter 11, the great heroes. But, uh, she is considered, and and I think that around the Feast of Purim, um, E-S-T- the Book of Esther is E S T H E R. That's how it's spelled in the Old Testament. Yes, and I, there, you know, there may be some variation. That that's an Eng- English transliteration of the yeah. of a Hebrew or Persian. Well, that spelling word. that spelling is not found in any of my translations. Right. Yeah. Well, anyway, I appreciate. <coughs> I can say Jerry calling in and. Uh, let, let me take a moment before we get up to the end of the show, almost at the end of the show, to to mention that we are. And I apologize uh, for my cough. I've been having this for most of the last week. There's something going around here. I don't think it's COVID. It's just people having colds and coughing and all that stuff. And I, I suppose it's you're almost politically incorrect to say you just got a cold and don't have COVID. It's much more trendy to have COVID or some some yeah, variant. Yeah, no, but I don't have fever. You need to get yourself symptoms. You need to get yourself a variant of some kind, Gary. That'd make you a hero oh, to yeah. everybody. But uh, let me just mention a couple of other things. Number one, you can contact this show by email at justchristians@att.net. We gave you the numbers, the text numbers, and I'll re-give them in just a moment. But you can reach the show, justchristians, all one word, at att.net. We love to get email from you. Maybe you can ask out a little longer question, etc. But you can also text the show uh, and during the week at text Mike at 772-260-6120, 772-260-6120, or Gary Jones, 772-260-6220. You can also listen to this show wherever you are. If you don't have an AM radio, uh, you can listen on the Internet or on your phone. Your relatives can listen in Timbuktu at WPSL.com. Just go to WPSL.com, click on the Listen Live, Listen Now button or Listen Live, and you'll get the show at 9 o'clock Eastern Time. Uh, they, they can find the button, or you can tune in to, with TuneIn Radio, an app on your phone, the Alexa devices, the Google Chrome, all those. Ask for WPSL 1590. It'll take you, and you can listen to the show. Your friends can listen to the show, and we'd love you to recommend it if you, if you can uh, or if you will. And then we have a podcast of recordings of the show at wearejustchristians.com. Wearejustchristians.com is our the podcast recordings and so forth. And so you can get the show, bring it on your phone, listen to it whenever you want to, go through all the different episodes. It goes back several years, and we're finally getting much, much better recordings the last year or so than we used to be able to do technically. So you can listen to the show, and, and that'd be great. Leave us some kind of comments on that. The church here also live streams our services. We meet at 10 o'clock this morning, just a little few minutes for Bible study, until about 11. And then 11 o'clock, we have our worship service. That's at 2196 Southwest Sabona Boulevard, 2196 
Southwest Savona Boulevard here in Port St. Lucie. We'd love to have you. We're not going to ask you for money. We're not going to embarrass you. Just come and see. Give it a chance. We appreciate you doing that. And so until next week, thank you for listening, and may God bless you. You've been listening to We Are Just Christians live from Savona Church in Port St. Lucie on WPSL Port St. Lucie.